Welcome to Between Two Lips, a podcast dedicated to all things pelvic health for women. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach, and I am excited to share with you information from leading pelvic health professionals from around the world, stories from women at all life stages who have faced struggles and successes, and of course, I share a little about my own pelvic health journey as well. There is too much silent suffering associated with the female pelvis, and I am on a mission to change that. It's time we talk openly about a part of the body that deserves a whole lot more attention than it gets. Join me each week for casual and candid conversations that will both inform and inspire you to optimize your pelvic health for life. Welcome to another episode of Between Two Lips. I'm your host, Kim Bopney, the Vagina Coach. And in this week's episode, I am joined by Dr. Cara Dionisio, who is a sparkly evidence-based naturopathic doctor in Owen Sound, Ontario, with particular street cred in hormones, period problems, vaginal issues, menopause, and hormone therapy. She helps women understand their health through the menopause transition and beyond. She received her undergraduate degree with honors in nutrition and nutraceutical science from the University of Guelph, where she was awarded the Brian Walker Memorial Scholarship for Highest Academic Achievement in Nutritional Sciences. She graduated with distinction at the top of her program with a Master in Science in Human Nutrition and Metabolism from the University of Aberdeen and the renowned Rowett Research Institute in the beautiful Aberdeen, Scotland. Her master's thesis researched the effects of omega-3 fatty acids on endothelial function. In 2008, Kara completed another four years of graduate study at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto, and she's excited to be asked to teach the menopause curriculum at the Naturopathic College, leading the way for more informed and educated clinicians in menopause practice. She's a leader in the field of menopause practice and regularly is invited to speak to naturopathic doctors across North America. She's a faculty member of The Confident Clinician, where she regularly lectures and leads a menopause fellowship program comprised of naturopathic doctors from across North America. She has been a NAMS certified practitioner, now known as the Menopause Society Certified Practitioner, since 2020, and one of the first naturopathic doctors with this designation and the inspiration for many more thereafter. She also holds level one training in pelvic floor physiotherapy. She is definitely somebody who I had to have on the podcast. She has spoken at my Kegels and Cocktails event in the past, and I absolutely adore the content that she shares and her approach. She also has a a great level of creativity and sense of humor in her work as well. And I hope you enjoy this conversation where we touch a little bit on what is perimenopause, menopause, so some of the main definitions. We then start to go into genitourinary syndrome of menopause. That's where we spent a lot of our time and and understanding from a pelvic health perspective what we need to know during the menopause transition. This went a little bit longer than I thought. We could have gone forever, and I hope to have her back for a second episode where we can dive more into systemic hormone therapy. But today we talk more about the vagina, of course, on Between Two Lips. So let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. I'd like to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Feel Amazing Vulva and Vaginal Moisturizer. Studies show that moisturizing with hyaluronic acid is an effective treatment for vaginal dryness. Vaginal dryness is most commonly associated with menopause. When we reach menopause, estrogen goes for a steep decline and so does hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid is a naturally occurring molecule that our body makes on its own, keeping our eyes, mouth, skin, joints, and vaginas naturally lubricated. 
but our body's hyaluronic acid starts to decline in our 30s and 40s and then more significantly post-menopause. There are other reasons that can lead to vulva and vaginal dryness, including the birth control pill, postpartum, overuse of pads and panty liners, certain cancer treatments, and some medications and health conditions. The Feel Amazing Vulva and Vaginal Moisturizer is made from hyaluronic acid and vitamin E to restore natural moisture back into the skin cells of the vulva and vaginal wall. It was researched and developed by BC-based pharmacists in collaboration with vagina owners age 35 and up and my good friend Shirley Weir over at Menopause Chicks. Feel Amazing can be purchased online without a prescription. This means you can take control of your vaginal health and apply the moisturizer as often as your own unique needs require without having to consult a doctor first. I use Feel Amazing, have been using it for several years and absolutely love it. I put it on right after my morning shower and it truly does feel amazing. No mess, no goo, just tissue support and health that I absolutely love. I've got a link in the show notes for you so you can get started taking care of your vulva vaginal health by moisturizing your vagina today. Hello, welcome to this week's episode. I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Cara Dionisio. Hello, Cara. Nice to see you. Hi, Kim. Nice to see you. How are you doing? We're doing well, doing well. It's been a while. You were a speaker at Kegels and Cocktails Online. Gosh, it, well, it was in the middle of the pandemic. I just remember that. Yeah, maybe. 2020, probably. Yeah, right. yeah. The, the first time, actually, that was, that was the first time that I had taken the event online. And I absolutely loved your presentation. I know that there will be hints of hints of what we talked about in, in today's conversation. So first of all, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your wisdom with my community. I'm really looking forward to it. I think I, as I start off every episode, I love hearing people's stories, kind of how they got to where they are now. So you're a naturopathic physician. How did you mm-hmm. end up down that path? And also now really spending a lot of time in that perimenopause, menopause space. How did that, how did that transpire? Yeah, it's it's interesting to, to to think of that story. I'm not quite sure is the full answer, but I think there's hints from my past. I thought I was going to be a, a vet. <laughs> I come from a family of like medical doctors, and I really I like to think out of the box, and I think of things a little bit differently. So I knew that wasn't the path for me. I thought it would be with my animal friends, but that didn't that didn't work out in practice. But what happened is in university, I did my bachelor's and. I quickly realized I loved nutritional science and I loved looking at health from a more preventative lens, you know, looking at all the other aspects of health, whether that's social determinants or nutrition or lifestyle. So I did my bachelor's and then went on to do my master's in nutritional science. And I think that's probably the most easy answer is that it it took me into the naturopathic route of care. But I would really say that I do, I love to think out of the box. I love to create, I love to bring creativity to my work. And I think you don't usually think of creativity in healthcare, but I'm a very science-based, evidence-based doctor. But I love the space I have with my patients in order to say, hey, what's your life? What are the problems we're trying to solve? And what are the tools that we can use to help you to get the health outcomes that you're looking for? And so- that's how I ended up here. I mean, working in the menopause population f- definitely fell fell on my lap. It didn't take more than one, two, or three patients 
in the menopause transition for me to just both fall in love with them and also see the immense shortfall of how we were just letting an entire generation of women, you know, fall through the cracks. And so I was in practice for about 10 years before I started to specialize in the menopause world. I don't know if I didn't listen to those stories before or fully understand it. I don't know if I needed to be a little bit more experienced or a little bit older, but eventually it came to the place where I just couldn't ignore their stories anymore. And I really dove into the research and just fell in love with this patient population. I think they're just wonderful people to work with. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Lots of overlaps. So I, I also initially started out in nutrition. I'd always had a passion for health and nutrition and uh, started when I went first was doing my undergrad in nutrition and decided that it was kind of putting me down the path at the time. Now, this is a long time ago. This was uh, putting me on the path for becoming kind of a dietitian in a hospital setting, which wasn't necessarily oh. where I wanted to end up. So I, I I ended up choosing a different path from there. And then, as you say, now with the menopause piece, that was for those that, that don't know my original background, I started working out with, sorry, working with pregnant women and new moms and the kind of the prenatal postpartum space, because that was so grossly overlooked from a pelvic health perspective. And then it wasn't until I started to go through perimenopause and the whole transition that I said, the holy, like there's a whole other layer of pelvic health that needs to be unraveled here as well. So it's, you know, as you say, you kind of, your personal side also kind of comes in and feeds what you're what you're doing from a professional perspective as well, which is which is interesting. Okay, so yeah, you're you're now working with that population. You love it, and as you said, it is it's it's actually shocking when you think of how such a huge percentage of our population has been overlooked for so many years, and and now what's happening is kind of exciting where there's been finally some conversation opening up and some research and there's lots of activity in in this yes. kind of quote-unquote menopause space which is exciting but also it, now it's very exciting <laughs> yeah and I think of that a little bit I was trying to think of an analogy and I used this with a patient the other day is it's a little bit like a pendulum effect and I'm sure we see this in any industry or any any problem right where Initially, it's overlooked, it's dismissed, it's not well done, it's kind of hiding in the shadows. You know, that is definitely not where we want to be. And so I love that this conversation is happening. Women are much more informed and aware. They're talking to their moms, they're talking to their girlfriends, they're, you know, taking lists of questions to their health professionals. And we're seeing a massive explosion of people online talking about perimenopause and menopause. I think there's, so I think net, this net positive, right? We can't stay where we were, but we do have this like almost like crazy out of control pendulum going the other way in which there is now almost, I don't want to say too much noise. I think there's not, there's never too much conversation, but what exactly what you said is that it can be overwhelming in now there's almost so much information. It's not necessarily all accurate or maybe if it's accurate, it lacks nuance. And I think when we're starting to really have voices in a newer conversation, I mean, this is a definitely on a wide stage new, right? As a as a as a population, we're we're only really starting to talk about this. 
we can get over over enthusiastic, you know, bombarding the messages, be a little bit polarized. And the, my two favorite words are nuance, nuance and paradox. And I think those two words are really needed in the menopause conversation because we've almost swung that pendulum so far that it's almost overwhelming for, for women to figure out what it is that they need or how to make the decisions that they need that are right for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important point. And, and I, I think, as you say, it can happen in any, any industry. There's always a huge pendulum shift and then some, somewhere we'll end up in a more informed yes. place with knowledge. So from coming, wanting to come from an informed place and wanting to make sure people are getting the information they need. Let's start with some definitions about, uh-huh. you, you know, we, I've said the menopause transition There's lots of people that will say I'm in menopause or I'm menopausal or, you know, and so there have been terms or words used as descriptors in the past. And now we have a few more words that we've added that we can put into that same kind of time frame, maybe. So perimenopause being one of them, I've heard people say premenopause, postmenopause, we have all sorts of things. So what's the pre, post, current? (laughs) What are the terms we need to know? (laughs) Absolutely. So let's talk about this. So I mean, from a medical perspective, it's really great. There's something called the straw criteria that came out. I believe it was, I don't want to put a date, 2014, I think, but I might be, I might be confusing that with when we coined the term GSM, which I know we're going to talk about today. Medical professionals now have this guidance of looking at something called the straw criteria and that's stages of reproductive aging. And so we have these fancy charts of you know, all the way from minus numbers to plus numbers and what the hormones are doing and the different stages there. I like to be a little bit more pragmatic and very simple for my patients or for those of you listening, just to really simplify what these stages are. I think it's just, it, it's nice. We don't want to like over medicalize. We just want to have women understand or timestamp where they generally may be in the transition and just have a really simple roadmap or path forward. So menopause is one day. It's the day that you've not had a period for one full year. So that's a retrospective. We don't know it's going to be your last period. When you've gone 12 months, we're fairly certain that that's, you know, probably the end. And so we're going to call that menopause. So one day you've not had a period for for 12 months. Anything after that is postmenopause. So menopause happy menopause day. You don't get more periods. So there's lots of, there's a pro there. And then every day after that is postmenopause. Anything up to that, we're going to be in this transition stage, which we're going to call perimenopause or around menopause. Okay. And so that is when we're starting to have changes to our cycles, either in character, duration, or flow. And we can break down perimenopause into two main categories. So Early perimenopause can be anywhere from five to 10 years ahead of your last period. So five to 10 years before menopause. And the stage of early perimenopause, at least medically, we are defining that as periods that are plus or minus seven days from your usual. Okay. So let's say your average period was, you know, 28 days. Most women don't have an average 28-day period or cycle, but we can take that 28 days and let's just say all of a sudden you have a 23-day period or a 35-day period. 
the variance is plus or minus seven days, and that's happening once or a little bit more frequently, we're fairly confident that we can say, okay, you're in early perimenopause. We also can stack some symptoms in there as well. So things like changes to the character of the period, a little bit more premenstrual symptom, mood changes, hot flashes maybe the week before the period. So some other things can creep in in that early perimenopause transition as well. Late perimenopause we think is anywhere between one and three years. And how we timestamp that is when you've gone 60 days without a period. So as soon as you've skipped a period, you've gone 60 days without one, obviously for not other reasons. But as soon as we kind of have started skipping a period and got it, gone that 60 days, we can, we can probably say you're in that late perimenopause transition, which is going to last about one to three years ahead of the final period. Got it. Okay. And I just want to clarify one thing. When you said, you know, 28 days, you, you, you said 28 day period, but I think what you meant was 28 day cycle. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Okay. Great. All right. Thanks for I, correcting Hopefully we don't that. have 28 Absolutely. day periods. Like, well, some people do. Some people do. <laughs> we're going to want to look into that, but certainly, like, like the be- bleeding can search changing yeah. in duration. But yes, I definitely yeah. meant plus or minus seven days from your typical menstrual cycle. Got it. Okay, yeah. thank you for clarifying that. And the, the term pre-menopause, I haven't heard it used a lot, but I have heard it out there, and I sort of feel like, do we really need to have a pre-menopause? Like, I mean, we've. <laughs> I sort of feel like. We don't really need that. Would you agree, or is there a reason why somebody would want to use the term premenopause? I I think that's a little bit too extra. I don't think we need it either. No, I see it's <laughs> kind of like pre-peri, you know, pre-peri menopause. And I don't know. I do, I don't absolutely. I believe in the straw criteria they call it reproductive stage. Got it. Okay. And then somewhere in there they say or premenopause. I like I like reproductive stage because that makes sense. You know, regular menstrual cycles potential to become pregnant if that's what you wish. And so, yeah, reproductive, early perimenopause, late perimenopause, last period, when we know you've not had a period for 12 months, that's menopause, anything after that, postmenopause. Got it. Okay. And what are the most common symptoms that you see? Now, I have I have seen all sorts of different people talking, and there's there's oodles and oodles and oodles of symptoms. There's oh. some that are kind of the hallmark, like hot flashes, mood swings, poor sleep, I think are are kind of what you think of when you think of menopause. But there are a whole host of other symptoms. And is it is it like it's close to 100, I feel. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's And it's difficult, too, because then we can break that question down into what do we see in perimenopause? What's more likely to show up after the periods have, have stopped? The ovaries are retired. What happens at that point, right? Yeah. And I think instead of having a list of 100 symptoms, this is where we really need to advocate for our patients to understand their health and understand their bodies so that they can correlate changes in how they're feeling to a hormone change in perimenopause or menopause. Yeah, I love that. Right. And to do that, when you have to understand your menstrual cycle so that you actually can discern when there are changes. Two, you have to understand your health so that you're not blaming everything on your hormones when it's your diet or your iron's low or, or X, Y, or Z that have nothing to do or, or are, we can't completely blame on hormone changes in menopause. And so in, 
if we rule out that, if we rule out it's not a change of health outside of hormones or outside of menopause, and you are noticing changes that are different for you, then we probably can put that in a perimenopause experience or a menopause symptom, right? And to do that, you have to understand your health and you have to rule out everything else, right? So that's where, you know, a lot of patients will say in perimenopause, I want my hormones checked. I'm not feeling right. My doctor won't test my hormones. Please test my hormones. Like I need to, some, I need help. Like I don't know what to do. And I know the solution is my hormones, test my hormones, right? And, you know, I will say, I get it. You're not feeling yourself. We will, we are going to problem solve this together. But the answer is not necessarily that we're ruling things in by testing your hormones. The answer is, let's just double check everything else in your health and get all of that off the table. Let's check your iron. Let's check your thyroid. Let's check your blood sugar. Let's look at your diet. Let's look at your stress levels and, and that you're sleeping more than five hours a night. And so that's really what health assessment looks like in this stage. It's looking at your whole health holistically and then certainly pointing a finger to hormones when it's appropriate to do so. Yeah. And that was 1000% me because I, I had, you know, I'd done the annual, I go to my doctor once a year and have a checkup and everything had always been fine. And then it was, you know, kind of late 30s, early 40s where, weird things started to happen, weird symptoms. And and so I kind of just let it go for a little while. But after a while, I, I was like, something must be wrong with my hormones. And and then going to the medical doctor saying, can you please test my hormones? And that all came back as quote unquote normal. And yet my, right. then that was like, but your iron is ridiculously low because I had these murder scene periods and was losing all this blood every <laughs> month, right? So, but there was no investigation as to why is your iron low? It just was like, your iron's low and you, here's some, here's some medication or here's some iron pills. And, and so I love what you're saying and that so many of us are disconnected from our bodies and don't understand what our health really truly is and when change happens. And it's sometimes way down the path until we're like, some, this is really not how I used to feel. One thing I want to bring into that is the thyroid piece. Cause that was also like hypothyroid and and an autoimmune version, Hashimoto's, can get muddled into this perimenopause because so many of the symptoms uh-huh. of each of those overlap. And so I I often say to, to women, make sure you get your thyroid with the antibodies checked just to, as you say, rule that out. And because I feel, and what I've been told, is a lot of people, a lot of women get diagnosed with hypothyroidism in that perimenopause phase, and many of them actually have the autoimmune piece that isn't diagnosed. Is that what you see in your practice? And is that something that you would recommend people do? Absolutely. I think, I mean, times of hormone change are tricky because they are windows of vulnerability. And we see this in many aspects in our life transition. So just like PMS, hormone change right before a period, a window of vulnerability, right, for whatever you're vulnerable to, whatever that is you know, headaches or, you know, sleep or mood. Postpartum, window of vulnerability, hormone change, lots of hypothyroidism or thyroiditis or or thyroid issues pop up postpartum. That's why I'm a big advocate for postpartum screening. We, We test baby, we look at baby, but we forget about mom, right? Hallelujah. Yeah. 
And then same with perimenopause and menopause, another window of vulnerability, which whatever you're susceptible to could go wonky, which could be your thyroid. And thyroid, you're going to think it's your hormones and it actually could be your thyroid, right? In another person, it's not their thyroid and it's not their hormones, but their murder scene periods are causing significant iron deficiency and no one's tested their iron or has tested it and said it's normal when it's really not. And so, or you're in your 40s and you're doing all the things for all the people, for your job, your family, your kids, you know, you're, you're, you're cooking, you're the CEO of your family, you know, you're doing all the things and it has actually, I don't want to say nothing to do with your hormones, but we can't blame your hormones or other parts when you're eating 30 grams of protein and you're getting two hours of sleep. That's a little exaggeration, but you know what I mean, yeah. right? Where yeah. where you can't have great hormones and you can't feel like yourself when all of those lifestyle pieces are falling as well. Right. And it sometimes might be easy. I don't want to say easy, but it's sometimes nice to have a finger to blame. Yeah. And hormones are really great to do that, that we can blame the hormone or we can blame the thyroid. And certainly in some women, it is the thyroid or it is the hormones, but we really have to look at the full, you know, the full picture of your yeah. of your life. And And for some, it's two things that are contributing, but most people, it's a perfect storm of different factors. And we can't say this is the problem. We can say, here's five things that are all contributing to how you're feeling. Right. And that's a little bit messier in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was around the time, that time where, where I, I had heard of naturopathic medicine before, but I it just I had been fine seeing my medical practitioner once a year. And and it was around that time where I I really wanted I was doing my own kind of self-exploration, really wanted more. And and it's something that I really value from a naturopathic medicine perspective is the the time and the sleuthing and the ruling out and kind of looking at that at that big picture that I think is unfortunately missed with the way that our current, at least here in Canada, the way our current healthcare system is set up. And we need medical providers for the times we need emergencies, for the times we need surgeries, for when we need medication. But from an overall health management and kind of looking and doing deeper dives into the root cause, I, I feel like that's not their area of expertise. Hey, I'm just jumping in to gently nudge you to put your pelvic health at the top of your to-do list today. I'm not talking about hundreds of Kegels. I'm talking about a whole body approach that addresses root causes and helps you get rid of your leaky bladder, your prolapse symptoms, your chronic low back pain, and your lackluster sex. My 28-day buff muff challenge has helped over 6,000 women stop suffering and get back to living. It's an app-based pelvic floor fitness program that gives you a 10-minute whole body workout each day for 28 days. That's it. 10 minutes is all it takes. You will build your bones, your heart, and your pelvic floor in a way that is unique and effective. Participants are always saying that they have never heard of an approach like this, and they have only ever been told to do Kegels or to never do Kegels, but instead do reverse Kegels. Kegels are effective and do work when done correctly and consistently, but most women don't know how to do them correctly, so even if they are consistent, they don't get the results they want, so they give up. I believe the pelvic floor needs to be trained dynamically with whole body movement, not with static Kegels done over and over. Come join me in my Buff Muff app and take the 28-day challenge. What do you have to lose except the pads? 
the symptoms, and the limitations. It's time to ditch the incontinence pads, eliminate bothersome symptoms, and get back to living. I have a link in the show notes below so you can sign up now and start buffing your muff right away. One term that I hear in this hormone conversation a lot is, I need to balance my hormones. So that's odd because we are, we're constantly in a flux of hormones. And so what does, if somebody is seeking to quote unquote balance their hormones, how would you, how would you describe what really truly we're trying to achieve? That's a great question because I also don't know what that means. <laughs> so it's hard to just, it's hard to, and I do hear that, like my hormones are out of balance. And, you know, I'll have discussions with my patients to say, you know, you are naturally in flux. I think that's a great, a great way to say it, right? And I'll get out my hormone chart and say, here's the general, you know, when you are regularly having a period and a regular menstrual cycle, you know, how do we balance this when we expect these ebbs and flows, these peaks and valleys in a predictable way over, over the month? And so you can't necessarily, you can't balance something that is continually changing. We certainly can support where problems are showing up, right? And I'll say to my patients, like, it's not the absolute level of hormone here, is that you're sensitive to the change of the hormone. So we're not trying to change absolute levels. We're not balancing things, but we're supporting your body when it's not happy that with the estrogen levels coming down, right? Or when at ovulation, when estrogen's high, you're getting a migraine. So I really will use my charts of here's what happens to hormones in the menstrual cycle. Here's the benefit of you understanding your body throughout it. And here's where we're seeing problems. And it's not because of the actual hormone. It's because your body is perceiving a change and that's where it's struggling. I love that. That's such a, a beautiful way to explain it. Before I get on to GSM, I know that that's kind of one of the main pieces we want to talk about. But before sure. I go there, I want to talk about the testing part. So with this balance question and testing can, some people say, absolutely, test, don't guess. Other people say testing doesn't tell us anything because hormones are constantly changing. And so if we do test, there's specific days to test on. Uh-huh. And then we have okay, well, once I've, if I'm not having a regular cycle or if I'm not cycling at all, should I still test? So can you kind of help us through the muddy waters of hormone testing? There's sure. saliva, there's urine, there's blood. Which ones should we do if we should do them at all? Absolutely. So my first like blanket statement is there is no hormone test for perimenopause or menopause or postmenopause. And we could just probably leave it there, but I think people might not believe me because they hear about, <laughs> they hear about all the hormone testing. And, you know, I'm trained through the North American Menopause Society. You know, I'm a Menopause Society certified practitioner. And it's very clear that, that, you know, based on their position statements and their guidance, which is formulated from the experts around the world, that there's really not a place for hormone testing to discern the stage of the menopause transition you're in, right? Rather, we go by characteristics of the period and changes to the menstrual cycle. And so, you know, that that's the, that's their position and that's pretty much supported by most menopause societies around the world, whether that's Canadian menopause or British or whatnot. I think 
I understand why my patients want to have a number, right? Like we measure everything else. Here's your ferritin level. Here's our goal. We're going to get here in three months, right? You know, here's your blood pressure. It's a little higher than we want. We're going to work on that. It's nice to have numbers. It's very comforting to have numbers, especially for something that perhaps we don't understand very well in the first place, right? So we're looking for the number to explain it to us and to give us absolute data, but we can't, we can't do that. So for example, in perimenopause, you know, let alone the menstrual variation in a regular menstrual cycle, like in the reproductive years, it's quite difficult to capture a good snapshot of hormone levels at that time. Throw in perimenopause when one cycle, it's a little bit longer, the next cycle you're skipping, you know, then a couple regular ones. What we test, let's say we could super accurately test on day three of one cycle, it's going to change the next cycle, right? And even if we could say with certainty that we had that one time point, like measured where we want it, it doesn't really matter because at this stage, again, remember I said, really what's important is the changes in hormones that are happening. It's not necessarily the absolute level. And so what I think we have to remember of testing, at least in perimenopause, is that one, it's a moving target. What we test this month is not what we test next month. The The change of hormones is more important. And we could be then falsely basing our treatment decisions on a number that isn't accurate, right? And then we could throw in serum testing or urine testing and pay $400 for that inaccurate number and add to the fact that hormone testing through like dried urine or dried urine in particular, it's not a validated test. So we do not have clinical studies to say that what we're measuring is what we're measuring. There's one test done by the manufacturer that shows that that test is as good as serum levels. And I can do a serum level for $40, not $400. And so I totally understand people want to understand their health. I love that but we don't have to be doing fancy testing. We just need to have great conversations, help that patient understand their body, understand the changes and feel confident in their ability to read their body and understand what's going on with them. So that's perimenopause. And then once we get to menopause, by and large, we still don't need to test. We're still going by that period. You know, if you've gone 12 months, you're, you know, that's menopause and then you're in postmenopause. We don't really need to have testing. If you're in postmenopause and not on any hormone therapy, I could bet you a million dollars where your FSH and your estradiol level are. There's really, I see urine metabolite testing done then, and I don't understand why, because the levels are just going to be a low baseline postmenopausal level. And so it's really not helpful at that point. The only time that it really is important or perhaps useful to do some hormone testing would be some cases where perhaps the period is getting irregular or missing under the age of 40 or perhaps under the age of 45 when we're suspecting early menopause or we're suspecting premature ovarian insufficiency. It's really important to catch those patients so that we can ad adequately support and treat them. And then we can get into some problems too when women are have an IUD or have had a uterine ablation and we don't have the period to go on. 
Most times we can still tell by other symptoms, but sometimes when the case is a little bit murky and we don't have a period as our guide, then sometimes we might occasionally need some hormone testing just to point us in the right direction. Yeah, and I just want to ask two follow-up questions, one being the people who have the IUD. So I was just speaking to a woman today who, she's 53, she's had an IUD for five years. Her doctor said it's now been extended that you can leave it in for eight years. Mm -hmm. So her last menstrual period, quote-unquote, was when she got the IUD put in. And so in that case, if she really wanted to know, could I take the IUD out and kind of be assured that I'm not going to have a cycle again, could I get my... FSH, like get my hormone levels tested in that mm-hmm. case. So that would be, as I understand what you're saying, that would be a time where potentially that would give you some information that could, yes. you know, do you want to leave the IUD in or take it out? Yeah, you can, you could accurately get an FSH or estradiol level in that, in that case. You can't if they're on oral contraceptive. So oral right. contraceptive is going to, to skew those, skew, yeah. skew those results. But in the case of an IUD, absolutely. And then on the case of the the urine testing, a lot of the argument that's made, you know, a specific, I, I want to say just for people who are on hormone therapy, but it's kind of, it's now, I see it sort of being promoted as if you are on hormone therapy, this is important information to have about the, the metabolites. So how are you metabolizing? Is it going down the right pathways in terms of your detoxification? Is that really important information for us to know with or without hormone therapy? Is it important for us to know how we metabolize our hormones? And to my knowledge, that is the only test that would point that out. Is that correct? It is the only test that would point that out. And I do think it's telling that there are no other tests because we the data that show the risks of those metabolites is extremely weak. Got it. And I actually think it does a disservice because we are then further creating fear of estrogen in our patients, Yeah, which is possibly the very thing that really miss or need. So yeah, I, I, I know there will be people who disagree with me on that point. But as I said, I'm very evidence-based. If I'm going to be running a $400 test, I need to know that it's validated. And I need to know that the data we tell the patient is clinically sound and clinically meaningful. And I cannot say that that's true about estrogen metabolites. Got it. Love yeah. it. Okay, I want to move on to GSM. So I know, you know, we, we could we could talk for hours about the symptoms of perimenopause and what do they mean? And like, that that's a really, really, that's a whole other podcast episode. But I want to bring it again to pelvic health and, and GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause. It's a very big mouthful. Thankfully, they, they shortened it to GSM. But <laughs> So this originally, you can talk a little bit more about this kind of the transition of this terminology. It used to be vaginal atrophy or and vaginal dryness was sort of included with that. And then that that changed. So I want to talk a little bit about why that happened, what GSM is like, what what does that terminology, what what are the symptoms underneath the umbrella of that terminology? Sure. Yeah, I I actually think this is a really interesting story. Also, probably because this is. Because I'm a little geeky in this area. So (laughs) I don't know if your listeners will. But what happened is so 2014, North American Menopause Society and ISHWISH, which is International Society for Sexual Women's Sexual Health, best acronym ever. Nams and ISHWISH (laughs) had a joint committee and they said, you know what, vaginal atrophy, it's not a great name. It's not accessible. It doesn't, it, 
it doesn't encompass the changes that can happen. It just is, it talks about the vulva and the vagina. If we say vulval vaginal atrophy or VVA, doesn't mention the bladder, doesn't mention sexual problems. And so they said, let's change vaginal atrophy. And they created the term GSM or genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And it's interesting, 20 years earlier, there was a similar consensus change of term for impotence in which they changed impotence into erectile dysfunction. And what they found is it actually removed the stigma. It increased patients going into their doctor to, they were much happier to say erectile dysfunction and doctors were more comfortable speaking about it. So it's interesting. It took only 20 years to move over <laughs> to the female side, <laughs> yeah. to the other side. But yeah, so we now use the term GSM, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which I mean, I don't want to think that my vulva or vagina either has atrophy or a syndrome, but it's probably a little better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I do really like it in an educational piece because it has all the components that help describe the actual problem. So genito, vulva, vagina, urinary. So it actually put the urinary. And syndrome means it's not one sy symptom. It's not just dryness but it's a syndrome or a collection of symptoms that are possible. And I think that's really helpful because I'll say to my patient, you know, an accessible term is, do you have vaginal dryness? And they'll say no, but then they'll go on to explain changes to bladder or changes to sexual health or, or whatever. And so the term's really helpful in explaining what, you know, where it can happen and that it could present differently in, in different in different people. And so, yeah, I, I do like the term. I think we could do a little bit better, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And so what are the more common symptoms, sensations, or experiences that somebody would have that would fall under that umbrella term of GSM? Absolutely. So, I mean, the nice thing here is we have a root cause. You know, naturopaths like to talk about root cause. The root cause is low estrogen, okay? And so... The tissues of the vulva, the vagina, the urethra, and proximal bladder, so the lower part of the bladder, are all extremely rich in estrogen receptors. And so as we as we come into postmenopause and estrogen levels are, are at lower levels, those tissues can struggle because they don't have that estrogen. And those tissues with estrogen around are thicker cells that line that line the walls. They are more lubricated. They have more blood flow. They have more rugae or kind of like an accordion so that it's very elastic and can stretch. I like to say to my patients, your vagina with estrogen around is like a pillow top mattress. So lots of, lots of cushion, lots of blood flow, and the tissues are really happy when that's there. In some people, as they have lower estrogen, this symptom or GSM tends to lag a little bit. So while there are... There are symptoms that are more likely in perimenopause, like I might put mood there. So mood changes really, really ramp up or show up in perimenopause. While you can have GSM in perimenopause, there, it certainly can really start to show up one, two, three, four, five years after you've not had estrogen around for a while. So it tends to lag a little bit, which can be a problem because then women don't relate it to the hormone change at menopause. 
And so, yeah, with just back to what I was saying, with estrogen around, we have that pillow top mattress, nice, lubricated, healthy, happy tissues. As estrogen is lower, we lose the thickness of the lining. So it's very thin, easy, breakable, less elastic, less blood flow, and less lubrication. And that can cause problems in all of the areas, whether that's changes to urinary habits, whether that's painful intercourse or just daily comfort of like experiencing dryness. I've had patients say they crack, like they get cracks and fissures and bleed when they sit down in their jeans, changes to sexual function in all domains, whether that's desire, arousal, orgasm. And we can even get changes to the architecture of the vulva. We can get narrowing of the vaginal opening and shortening of the vaginal canal as well. So there's many ways that this can express to different degrees. And every woman is a little bit different in how this shows up and when it shows up. And how would we, if we're experiencing any or even one of the symptoms, who should we see and what would the treatment, what sort of treatments are indicated to help help with the GSM? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's several people you could see. I would see I would say the best person is the one who is well informed on GSM. That could be like it's very great to start with your primary care provider. I would hope they would do an exam. And so do we need to have an exam to to say, okay, you have GSM? Not necessarily, but I think it's very preferable. And you know, a lot of a lot of patients will go to their doctor and in some cases there's no exam and saying, ah, it's just part of menopause, use a loop, right? So the reason I think it's really important to have an exam, whether that is your family physician, whether it's someone like myself who, you know, I'm trained in pelvic floor physio and NAM certified, where I would do the exam, or your gynecologist, or often a really great pelvic floor physio, right, who is there anyway and can assess the tissues as well. And so just someone you trust, someone you're comfortable with, someone you have the time to ask the questions and who will do the exam and show you exactly, you know, what they're seeing is the person to go to. And I know that we, not every person has all of those options available. I do think it's changing, but I really wish we had had more people just looking at vulvas and it's really important. I mean, vulvar cancer is very low. Like it's it's not a very common cancer, but it certainly is. We want to be ruling out things like lichen sclerosis, which is very common in this in this time of life as well. We want to be just ruling out other infections as well, and then we want pelvic health professionals to be assessing the pelvic floor. So yeah, lo- lots of things, lots of things to talk about to screen for. And lots of different professionals who who potentially could help. Yeah. And as it currently stands, it is not available. Vaginal estrogen is not available over the counter. So all of those people could assess. The only people that could not prescribe the estrogen would be the pelvic physio. However, they could sure. say, I recommend you go see your care provider to get a Absolutely. Prescription for vaginal estrogen. So is that, is vaginal estrogen, would you say that that is, you know, there are some urologists who are quite vocal in this space who are essentially saying all evidence is saying from the age of 45 onwards, all women would benefit from being on vaginal estrogen for the rest of their life. Let's not wait for us to develop symptoms. Let's be proactive, maybe even intervene earlier if needed. So is that, is that what you are familiar with from an evidence perspective as well? And is that what you would recommend or is there something different? I like to sit in the 
in the middle pendulum, kind of <laughs> waving at the bottom with a little nuance, you know, not on either either side. I think I understand those urologists, again, like it's like you've had generations of women not being offered something as safe and simple and root cause as vaginal estrogen. Right. Like, and so we need to be vocal about that. Does everybody need it? Do we need to use it preventatively? I don't, I probably wouldn't go that far, but I have the opportunity of having such personalized one-on-one long visit type of medicine that I know is not accessible to everybody. So I think in my case, it's definitely conversations over time. And really part of evidence-based medicine is including the values of the patient. And so if they're like, yep, my this, this is not happening to me. I could see what happened to my mom or my sister. We're starting this early. Great. And, you know, if others are like, you know what, I can, I'm happy checking in. I have my pelvic physio. I'm my gynecologist. You know, I have you. We will just make decisions over time. Then I think that's really reasonable as well. Perhaps in your 40s or in late perimenopause, we're using hyaluronic acid. And that might be perfectly, that might be a great solution long-term for many, many people. Or eventually we're starting to see little signs and we're starting to to have the discussion about estrogen. Mm-hmm. So the nice thing is that there are options, there's non-hormonal options, and there's there's vaginal estrogen in lots of different formats. And we really can have have women, you know, after counseling, choose choose what really feels right for them. And you're not marrying one, right? right. You can you can either, you know, stepwise approach through time or or just change as symptoms change or as severity changes as well. Yeah. You mentioned hyaluronic acid, and that's a, an ingredient in a lot of vaginal moisturizers. It's non-hormonal. Uh-huh. And then there's also vaginal DHEA. So there's sort of, and, and then there's lubricant. So we kind of have to see these buckets. So estrogen is coming in to replace the lost estrogen. Hyaluronic acid is coming in to help retain moisture because we no longer produce as much hyaluronic acid. Uh-huh. Vaginal DHEA, as I understand it, is helping with the conversion of estrogen and testosterone, which is a non-hormonal option. And then lubricant is for reducing friction for insertive sex. Yeah. Are, am I missing? Is there something else that we should be considering? And then after you answer that, can you explain more about vaginal DHEA and what role that would play? Sure. I think you got, I think you actually hit on all of the buckets of options. So just to recap them, but I'm pretty sure you got them all. Vaginal, like a lubricant is for fun. It's for sexual activity. It's to, It increases pleasure for sexual activity. Okay. So that's what the lubricant is. And I love geeking out on lube science. So if we have time, <laughs> we can go to that. <laughs> a vaginal moisturizer is just like you moisturize a other places of your body, it's just like a daily moisturizer for that area of your body, vagina and vulva, okay? And that that will include something like a vaginal hyaluronic acid, which is great, helps retain moisture and helps retain some of that comfort as well. The hormonal options are several. So vaginal estrogen is one, which comes as creams, tablets, rings. Have I missed something? Creams, tablets, rings, are the the main ones and a couple different ones within each of those categories. And then vaginal DHEA is, I'd still consider a hormonal option. 
It's a little bit newer to the market. It only came into Canada or was Health Canada approved as of 2020. And in Canada, it's a product called, the drug name is Pasteron, but in Canada, it's called Intrarosa. And it's actually a daily suppository, whereas vaginal estrogen is generally, for most of those forms, twice weekly. Vaginal DHEA or Intrarosa is a daily DHEA, which your tissues will convert to estrogen and testosterone. It is approved mostly for dyspareunia. So that's the main indication that we're starting to think of that. Or generally, I would say non-responders to vaginal estrogen would potentially consider vaginal DHEA. It's really great because the uterus doesn't have the ability to convert that. So it is a safe option, but it is a newer one. And I, I can't clinically actually naturopaths in Ontario anyway, are not able to prescribe vaginal DHEA. So I don't have the same clinical, it's different when you're prescribing and you have that clinical feedback, but I certainly have talked to lots of gynecologists who it's actually becoming more preferred for them. So I do think the vaginal DHEA is an evolving story and definitely one that's worth chatting to your gynecologist about. Mm -hmm. What about testosterone? And I know like even is very difficult here. I'm in B- BC. It's very difficult to find a care provider who would prescribe testosterone. Now there can be systemic. I'm going to have to have a part two with you because we don't have time to go into the whole <laughs> systemic hormone therapy conversation. But there are many people who are using vaginal testosterone. So yeah. they would be using, say, vaginal, sorry, testosterone cream, maybe inside the vagina, maybe around the labia, around the clitoris. And there's some people that say, never do that. Your clitoris is going to become like a penis and it's going to enlarge. And then there's other people who are like, absolutely, we have, we benefit from estrogen, sorry, from testosterone, Mm -hmm. you know, around the vulvar tissues and the inside of the vagina. So can you speak to that? Yeah, we have much less evidence on intravaginal testosterone from my last reading is on it. The main areas that we have are women who are, there seems to be a subset of women on oral contraceptives, which which really lower your testosterone level, that that lower testosterone really shows up in the vulvar tissues as significant dryness or problems. It's not, I don't want to say birth control causes vulvar issues, but in a subset of very susceptible women, that tends to be something that can show up. And so I know there are studies, they're preliminary of using it there. I, I think more women are using it for libido at this point, or we do have studies on intravaginal testosterone also for like vulvodynia as well. Hmm. So they're very, they're, the studies are a bit more specific. And so I can't comment on its use more broadly. I just don't think we're there in the research yet. And yeah. You know, as an evidence-based practitioner, that's where I like to, to be I like to hang out and and it's to be determined. I, yeah. I think it has potential. I wish it was moving faster and I wish testosterone in general was more considered in Canada or North America or anywhere. You know, the first female-specific testosterone product was released in Australia only a, a year ago. Yeah. Or two years ago. So it that's also to be continued. But certainly I do have gynecologists who are prescribing it, but that's probably the level at which that prescription is probably best suited. We're just a little bit ahead of the research on that one. Right. Before we wrap up, I wanna I wanna tackle the conversation of 
and this, this can apply to systemic versus vaginal, but we're going to stay in the vagina right now. Okay. With, <laughs> with bioidentical versus non-bioidentical. Mm-hmm. And, and so one question that's not necessarily related to that, but when we use vaginal estrogen, we don't have to go way up. The receptors are are closer to the opening. Yes. So when we are using, whether it's a, a tablet form or the cream, we want to apply it more closer mm-hmm. to the opening. Is that accurate? And where? And then for the ring, where does the ring actually go? Does it go high up or does it stay low down? Mm-hmm. And then on the and then the conversation of should we be using bioidentical or non-bioidentical? What's the what's the rationale and evidence supporting there? Sure. Let me tease out some of those from ease of answering. The ring sits up around the cervix, so it is a higher application. It's a very low dose. Like, it over 90 days releases about 7.5 micrograms of estrogen daily. And, I mean, it's hard to have the ring lower. It would probably just fall out. So, Like a uterine prolapse may not have success with the ring. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have many takers on the ring. I don't know why. I think there's certainly, I, I know, you know, populations who maybe are less mobile or, or something like that, where they want their practitioner to insert it every every time. There's definitely use for it, but I, I have low, low intake of, yeah. uh, of patients <laughs> going for that option. So that was the ring part. Absolutely. So when I said the estrogen receptors are really rich, in particular, the like the lower third of the vagina is where I say to to apply it. One, we're keeping it a little bit further away from the uterus. Two, that lower vagina abuts the proximal bladder, so the urethra and the bladder, so that we're going to have the benefit to the bladder. And then I say, you know, apply it there. And if it's a cream, we're going to, you know, bring the applicator out or our fingers out and also apply it to affected areas of the vulva. Yeah. And I think that's a benefit of the cream is that we can address both internal and external mm-hmm. tissues, whereas with the tablet, it's it's really just the internal piece. So yeah, yeah. it's okay. a little bit less flexible. I think over time, the tablet, you know, once we get into a steady state, it works as well. It just takes a little bit longer. Right, right. Okay. So then bioidentical versus non-bioidentical options, which there's, there's, yeah. there is the hangover that again, this is a really big conversation, but we have to address it here specific to vaginal estrogen. Sure. Should we be seeking out bioidentical or is the non-bioidentical fine? I love to, so the word bioidentical is so loaded that I try just to not use it. I'm just going to forget that term exists. Although, I mean, obviously, when my patients come in, I will help have the conversation with them about what that means. I like to shift the conversation instead of saying bioidentical to standard of care. So we have this array of vaginal estrogen products. They are standard of care at the dosages and forms that they're given in. And it's not about whether it's bioidentical. It's about whether it's a safe level, whether it's the level that's going to do what it needs to do, and whether that form of application, whether cream, tablet, ring, is their patient's going to use it because they don't mind using it, right? And so I don't actually think for vaginal, when we're looking at data, comparing it, like there's a large Cochrane review comparing all of the different types of vaginal estrogen, including different rings, 
sorry, the rings, including like Premer and Cream or more. It actually includes estriol, you know, looking at the different types, all the different types, and it actually found no difference in efficacy, no difference in adverse effects. So the best estrogen is the one that is safe and the one the patient will use. It's not good if it's going to sit in the drawer. It's too goopy. It's too expensive. They don't understand it. They think it's too risky or you, they think you're going to kill them by using right. it or they read the pack, pa- the leaflet, right? Yeah. Which is completely inaccurate and would put the fear in anybody. Right. So yeah, bioidentical is not necessarily better here. The, we have lots of options. The best one is the one that's best for that patient. And that's just like you should be offered all the options and and just work together to figure out the best one for you. Okay. And you brought up estriol. So I think mm. it's also important. I keep thinking that we're going to wrap it up, but I'm like, oh, just one more question. Estriol and estradiol. And there's also estrone, which doesn't necessarily come into the vaginal estrogen. It does in Canada, actually. It does. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So what... So estriol, estradiol, estrone. estrone. Can you define what those are and how they sure. how they pertain to the vagina? Yeah. So they're just there are three different types of estrogen that our body naturally makes. So all of us right now have estradiol, estrone, and estriol. Different ratios at different points of our life, whether we're pregnant or, or whatnot. But essentially, they're all endogenous. We have all those types of estrogen in our body. And when we're adding back estrogen to the vagina, we have the option of all those different types of estrogen, okay? When we're looking at, I'm going to take estrone out first. So estrone is a product now in Canada as of two or three years called estragyne or estrogen. Yes, yes, okay. Yes, yes, yes. It is an estrone form of estrogen oh, as I a, va- a low-dose vaginal cream. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't know how it's Health Canada approved because I have never seen a clinical study on estrone vaginal cream. So that Cochrane review I mentioned did not have estrone. So it's curious to me, in the pandemic, Premarin cream was on back order. So a lot of my patients who had been prescribed Premarin from their gynecologist were switched over to this estrone or estrogyne cream. So it's less often used. I don't see it used too often, but it is in Canada, not the States. It's in Canada only, I believe. Interesting. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Estradiol is probably the main vaginal estrogen. The ring, the estring is estradiol. Well, I guess it's not. I guess it's not in Canada. The ring is estradiol. Premarin is conjugated estrogen. So that's a whole other kettle of fish. And then Vagifem, obviously, is the mainstay, or most patients, when they go to their doctor or gynecologist, are going to be put on Vagifem, and that's an estradiol uh, 10 microgram tablet that's inserted twice twice a week. And so those are the products that are, you know, the ring in particular and Vagifem are estradiol-based. And then the third category is called estriol. In North America, there is no vaginal estriol product available. So if we're wanting to use vaginal estriol in North America, it does need to be compounded. In all in 40 other countries around the world, it is standard of care and in fact in most countries it's the first line therapy. So estriol the, is estriol. So in the UK on the NHS because it's a public system, they have their tiers of where you have to start. Estriol is the first line therapy 
and and it's a product called Ovestin that's available in 40 countries all over the world. And so that's very common. In Switzerland, five out of the seven of their top vaginal estrogen products are estriol-based. It probably has as much or more longstanding data on it. It just happens to not be available in North America. Is it better? I don't think so. Again, I think they all can work if they're used as intended at the right frequency. The reason I do like Estriol is that the other two creams, remember the ones that one's Premarin-based and one is the Estron-based, which some patients just don't want those. And so if we need the flexibility of a cream, maybe to apply it to the urethra or parts of the vulva, then compounding Estriol can be an option. I really, in my practice, I'm switching towards using Health Canada-approved products wherever possible. But, you know, those are options on individual basis that we can use as well. What about Estrace cream? So Estrace is an estradiol cream, but it's only available in the United States. Oh, I thought that was in Canada as well, too. All right. Thank in you fact, it, it's a cream and possibly an insert. But yeah, it's not available. Estrace is not available in Canada. There's one more new one, new kit on the block called Invexi. Have you heard of Invexi? Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a really low dose. They have a four microgram and a ten microgram, and it's in a capsule. I've never be I've not been able to find it in Canada. So it's Health Canada approved, but I've actually not found a pharmacy that has it. So interesting, an interesting new one. Mm-hmm. All right. So the the follow up question that always comes with regards to anytime you hear the term hormone therapy is, is it safe? Is it going to cause breast cancer? Is it going to give me heart disease? So specific to vaginal estrogen, what is it safe? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where, I mean, there's so much fear around estrogen that a lot of my day is just counseling with actual data. Like what does the actual body of research say and helping my patients understand that risk and, and applying it to them. So if we're, we'll save systemic hormone therapy risk for another day. But when we're looking at vaginal estrogen in particular, it is, we just have so much data that it is incredibly safe. The dose is extremely low. It is applied locally where it's going to affect the vagina, you know, the bladder and the vulva. We see a little bit of uptake initially, in particular when the tissues are really thin, if we were to test blood levels of estrogen in the first few weeks after starting vaginal estrogen, we do see a little bit of an increase of serum or blood estrogen levels. But that really starts to come back down as the tissues become thicker and plumper, the absorption isn't isn't as much. And so it's not an estrogen that we're using for the rest of the body. It is a very special low-dose estrogen that is used specifically for the bladder and the, the vulva and vagina. And so just given that, it does have a different set of rules and different set of risks than when we're talking about systemic hormone therapy or whole-body hormone therapy. When we're looking at the risks of low-dose vaginal estrogen, it's interesting, the Women's Health Initiative, you know, the, the trial that caused all the fear and there's lots of good and bad points about that study. They did actually a separate trial, and there, it was an observational part of their trial. And in that, they looked at the safety of vaginal estrogen, of women who were on vaginal estrogen. And what they found was that women who were on vaginal estrogen did not have any increased risk for breast cancer, 
cancer, stroke, blood clots. So all of the things that we're worried about and all of the things are side effects that is listed in some of the package inserts. Those package inserts extrapolate from old data from systemic hormones of old types of hormones. We do not have blood, blood cancer risk, breast cancer risk, clot risk when we're using low-dose vaginal estrogen. And in some trials, we're actually seeing some benefit. That's a, a separate case. But <laughs> <laughs> we, we really can be really assured. I mean, if you the only contraindications would be, you know, someone who has unexplained vaginal bleeding, we would not be adding this in. And certainly there are conversations about can we use low-dose vaginal estrogen in those who've had a history of an estrogen-receptive positive cancer. That, to me, is, again, a special case that I would fully leave in a gynecologist or oncologist's hands. But it certainly isn't an absolute no. You know, Nam says it can be considered in those patients with shared decision-making with the oncologist after trying other options and if it's really significant. So I think given that that, you know, can potentially be an option even in those cases and long-term safety data, I, I hope that women are really self-assured that it is such a safe therapy. And that's important to know. You don't want to be using a medication that you're worried about or you're right. fearful of, like you never want, I don't care if it's a supplement or a food or whatever, you don't want to be putting something in or on your body that you're scared of. Yeah. And with GSM, it is chronic progressive. It, if it's there, it will continue to be there and it will continue to get worse over time. And I'll say that to my patients that are like, gee, thanks, Kara. I'm like, but we, <laughs> but the good news is we it's have therapies point. that we can prevent this or we can treat it at any stage very, very, very successfully, almost 100%, I would say. But you have to keep using it for it to be effective. Right. And women will not keep using vaginal estrogen if they think it's scary or risky. And so part of prescribing the vaginal estrogen prescription is easy. It's like, here's your options. Here's the standardized dose. Go ahead. Use it twice a week, you know, in perpetuity. The real skill in preservation prescribing vaginal estrogen is having our patients understand the nature of GSM, why it's important to keep going, and that it's extremely safe to do so. Yeah. Yeah. The the warning labels in vaginal estrogen hold so many people back from an incredibly beneficial and safe therapy okay. because, and I mean, so, so many people disregard, they just, they don't even, they don't even pay attention, but a lot of people who are reading are just, they, they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to get dementia. I'm going to get you know, heart attack, and I'm going to get cancer. And, and again, there's there are some urologists who are working very hard to have that removed because it is absolutely a barrier to care. And 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 I think it's important that you say we have to understand what's what are the causes, and and here's the actual true data that can help reassure people because it there is so much fear around that word estrogen. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's so good to know. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, so definitely, if you will, I would love to have you part back for a part two, and we'll go down a bigger conversation of hormones because, like, we could be here all day long. Yes. But where can people, in the meantime, where can they follow you, find out more about what you do and your work, and potentially work with you? I know there's limitations within geographically, but mm -hmm. um, where can we find you? Yeah, I mean, my physical clinic is here in Owen Sound, Ontario, and so I am able to see patients 
either locally or virtually as long as the patient lives in Ontario. I can be found on all the places, mainly Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Kara ND. So D-R-K-A-R-A-N-D. I've taken a little bit of a break lately. I'm trying to, I'm trying to really consciously think of how I want to show up. I think we had this conversation. The menopause space has exploded so much that I just want to be really cognizant of how I show up and that I show up in a way that is meaningful and positive and educational in a safe, in a safe way. So I don't know. I'm finding it challenging to know how to do that, but I will be, you know, I, I definitely am there and will and hope to be back there a little bit more. And I've got, you know, other things coming down the line. If you have any practitioners listening, I do a lot of, I teach all over North America, both at continuing education. I have a menopause fellowship through a program called the Confident Clinician. So if there's any evidence-based clinicians listening, you can certainly find me talking on all things menopause in lots of places as well. And that's where I am. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, that was such a, that went really, really fast. It did. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, we've definitely gone over time and thank you very much for, for being generous with your time and your knowledge. And, and really, I, I love the way that you have presented the information to, you know, from an evidence perspective that kind of calms down the hype that is often, as you say, maybe creates a little bit of fear and, and uncertainty in a lot of people. So I really appreciate your approach. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I, I could talk to you all day because, I mean, when you love what you do and see the need for just people to hear really great quality information, we, we could talk all day. So thank you for having me. Thank you for bringing me in. And I hope it was helpful for your listeners. Absolutely. That's it for another episode of Between Two Lips. Thank you so much for choosing to spend part of your day with me. If you are enjoying the show, I recommend subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And I would also be grateful for a positive review. This will help get the information I share into the hands of more people who may not even know that help exists. Finally, I encourage you to take what you learn here and put it into action so that you can ensure that what you hear me and my guests share is not just lip service.